Oh my goodness, we're starting on time. Ah, oh, let the record show that this day, 11-11-2012, the Freedom Aid Radio Sunday Philosophy Call-In Show started on time. So, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, I guess um, one or two items of note-taking and bookkeeping and updating. I will be speaking Saturday, April the 20th, 2013, from 3 to 10 p.m. Wow. Actually, I'm not going to get the whole time, those bastards. But uh, I will be speaking in New York, and you can have a look and get some tickets. Uh, I, you know, you, you should come. If you're anywhere in the neck of the woods, you should come. I mean, it's five bucks if you uh, go ahead of time. So you got to come and check it out. Location is TBD, but you can go to anarchynyc.eventbrite.com. That's B-R-I-T-E. That's uh, anarchynyc.eventbrite.com. That's going to be Saturday, April 20th, 2013. Come on down. <laughs> and um, I hope that you will. Uh, it's going to be a lot of great speakers. So come on down and support your local voluntarist community. And if I do say so with not a hint of modesty, you really have to come see me live. It's a great experience. I'm really, really getting good. So I hope that uh, you will be able to come down and check it out. Other than that, I believe the documentary is, is coming along, and I'm very, very pleased with it. We have the first 20 minutes of, it's about 50 minutes and change, so we have the first 20 minutes um, mostly done, and um, we are plowing ahead. Uh, of course, we accelerate as we move forward, and we have uh, a new set of animators coming on board tomorrow, which should help grease the wheels. So again, anything that you can do to help out with the somewhat surprising costs of everything <laughs> to do with the movie. I would really appreciate that. You can go to freedomainradio.com forward slash donate to help out. And remember, the quality of the movie is really going to be dependent upon the amount of donations. So help us not make it suck, uh, because I certainly think that the script is is great. I was uh, chatting with another a filmmaker um, who's just released a very successful documentary, and uh, he wanted to see to hear the audio, so I sent him a copy um, to keep private, and uh, he said that at the end of it, he was in tears. So, uh, I think it's going to be very good, but the only thing that I would recommend is, you know, obviously we'll, we'll spend what we can to make it look good. If it comes out and you feel it looks cheesy, and you never donated, and you could have donated, well, I'm afraid that's mirror time for you, my friend. <laughs> so, if you'd like to help out, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So, that's it for my Updaty duties, and um, thanks to Adam Kokesh of Adam vs. the Man. We did two shows last week. Um, if you ever do want to hear me do a fair amount of podcasting or video interviews in the voice of Martian the Marvin, then you really want to go to Adam versus vs. the Man.com. Um, I've got it out as a podcast, but he's got the juicy video. I'll probably republish that too. Thanks again to Mises.ca for having me down to the University of Toronto where I gave two speeches. And uh, it, was, uh, all, it was all fantastic. Had a great time. Went out for dinner with listeners, and we stayed up chatting till the wee hours. So, I mean, <laughs> I was listening to an audio book called God Know by Penn Jillette, who is a very intelligent and articulate, but surprisingly coarse man. And uh, he was talking about, at the end of their shows, they hang around and talk to listeners. Uh, and as he, as he put it, where the fuck else have I got to go? <laughs> now, I don't, I do have the fuck else place to go, but 
uh, I really do relish and enjoy the chance to chat with listeners. So it's a, it's a private live show, <laughs> but not the kind where you end up having to go to the bathroom with a handful of Kleenex. Well, never say never. Anyway, so that's it for my intro. Thanks again to James for, for hosting. If you would like to have a chat, I think we have uh, uh, at least one in the call. Uh, so let's get down to the listeners, baby. All right, next up, we have Biffo. Hi, um, good morning, Steph. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing, my friend? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a question today about work. Um, basically, just let me lay down the whole story here. Um, it, in recent months, I've come to a realization that I fundamentally don't want to work. Um, I guess that's just the most succinct way I can put all of that. It, it, it began with, it began with me coming back to, coming back to, um, where I grew up for summer and I started working at several jobs and the longer I worked, the more I found that every day was just unbearable. And I thought I had acquired a job, which was something that I desired. I always had this dream that I would get into a job that was entrepreneurial. And in this job, uh, I got to teach. I got to do marketing. I got to do all these skills, which eventually would, you know, would look good on a resume. And eventually, I I, I had this whole vision for my life that I was going to go ahead and, and make something of myself, be a, a high-powered salesman or be some sort of marketing whiz and there was always this fantasy that played out in my head that you know I get out of college and do something along those sort of lines but this summer I've just been taking a break from college and the more I work and the more I think about it uh, it just that prospect just terrifies me and I'm done with that job now but whenever I would go to work I'd feel like a sense of stress and a sense of discomfort that that this was going to be the rest of my life. And I asked like people who were sales managers. I asked people who worked up in the chain of the industry I was working at. And they're all like, oh, yeah, I work 10 hours, 12 hours, days, no problems. No problems. Just get up at 7.30 in the morning and get off work at 7 o'clock at night. And they just seemed to, this was just their lives. And, um, and they didn't have any problems with doing overtime. And this just seems to be the cost of, to me, this deal was sold to me as the cost of growing up. You grow up, you got to do more work. The more work you do, the more money you make, but you got more work to do. But recently, I've just been really struggling with that idea. And um, I used to be one to want to be a salesman. I used to want to do all these entrepreneurial things. But now I just don't want to. I just want to lie in a hammock sometimes and just forget about all, all those things for for just leave me alone for a few years. But um, but then there's always a part of me which is like oh you're throwing all your talents out the window and um you're weak you're not you're not able to achieve you're not you're not like Howard Rourke or Hank Reardon or all those um all those figures and I don't know how quite to reconcile that yeah I mean you want to be careful about bringing Ayn Rand characters into the mix <laughs> you know that's like me saying well um I can't sing as high as Mickey Mouse <laughs> you know they're fictional <laughs> characters and um, you don't want to 
get body dysmorphia because you compare your curves to Jessica Rabbit, right? So uh, so anyway, I mean, just be careful with the Ayn Rand stuff. And she said exactly the same thing. She said, my characters are not prescriptions for actions, they're metaphors. So I think it's important not to confuse what's possible with Ayn Rand's characters, right? Who never get pimples and <laughs> never have a bad night's sleep. And right? It just, you know, it's important. So I guess my question is, so you want to exercise all of your abilities, you know, and I, I think that Aristotle is pretty right. He's not philosophically right, but he's kind of intuitively right when he says that, you know, happiness is the exercise of your faculties to the maximum extent. But but in pursuit of what, right? That's right. You can be a really excellent axe murderer, right? You can be really good at selling your candidate in the political arena, Right, none of which is is good, and so I guess my question is: If you 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 said all of these things you want to do, I want to sell, do marketing, and all this, but to what end? Like for what? What products? What? These are all form. It's all form, not content. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I absolutely have I absolutely have no idea what I want to sell. The vision I had in my mind was just that I wanted to sell. The whole sales process was just fascinating to me. And I remember asking you about sales advice once. And I was asking, like, oh, how do you do cold call? How do you do cold calls better? How do you, um, you know, get prospects? How do you do um, all, all those sorts of sales process things? I was very fascinated in the idea of sales being a hunt and that I could be, rel- I could achieve things relatively well in that. But um, the more I think about it is that I, I don't really want that with my life, that the stress, the idea of the stress of that hunt, and and the more I think about it, it's like it's not only to do with selling any particular product or any particular thing, but doing any form of work, like um, like uh, even just yeah, the most simple jobs now seem horrifying to me when I think like think of oh, if I'm a waiter now, if what if ten years later I'm doing the same thing or or I'm doing something else, except it's harder and harder. It, there's no form, I guess, I can put to it, but it's it's rather well. Strange. I mean, okay, so I mean, obviously, you're putting a, a lot in here, and I, I wanted to point out that these guys who I got up at seven thirty, and then I get home at seven. It's like, so okay, they're making money and they're they're selling stuff, which I guess is fine, but you know, what are they not having? They're not having time with their children. Mm-hmm. They're not having time with their friends. They're not having time with their wives. And these are the kinds of people who, when they grow up, because I don't think that's very mature, uh, what they're doing is that there's no balance there, right? So when they grow up and, and they get older and, you know, they get into their 50s and their health begins to do its slow, steady march down to the grave and they have money, but they don't have, maybe they're divorced or maybe they, they, they're not close to their adult mm. children, and so on. You know, it's the cats in the cradle song, right? Yeah. And then what happens is they look back and they say, well, shit, the hell was I doing all that work for? I have more money than I can use, more money than I need to live on. And, you know, what's the point of being able to fly to Bali if nobody will come with you? Mm-hmm. What's the point of having a big house if you wake up and your only breakfast companion is an iPad or the television? Right? So, uh, you know, be careful of... The hard work ethic, it is something that is put in place to make you 
more productive to your bosses, mm-hmm. right? You really got to watch out for that Protestant work ethic is a subtle, smoky little bitch that will steal decades from your life, make you extremely productive to your bosses. I mean, your bosses don't care if you see your children. I mean, obviously good mm-hmm. bosses do, but I mean, the, the merely economically driven bosses, they don't care if you see your children. What they care about is you close the deal. And if closing the deal means that in 20 years you're not close to your children, what do you think they're going to go for? What do you think they're going to encourage? So the the cult of excellence, I'm I'm extremely skeptical of the cult of excellence. Um, I I mentioned this before on the show, but excellence usually just means making other people – like being convenient for other people. And so if you don't know – what value you're going to add to the world, right? So then, then it's really hard to be motivated to do anything. I think. I mean, if you if you're not just some robot that's programmed by propaganda to make other people uh, wealthy and <laughs> powerful. And so, what I would say is to look into your history, to look into your childhood. I guess I'll ask the question now, and to say. What was considered or what was portrayed as the good life in your environment when you were growing up? What was considered Mm -hmm. to be the ideal? What was the good life? The good life. Well, now that's that's pretty evident to me now that I think of it because um, all throughout my childhood, my family is full. It's a family full of professionals, and I got relatives, and they're all doctors, engineers, and lawyers, and and the message that I always got from my uncles and my father and my mother was that, oh, yeah, you, you know, you could be poor, but if you're poor, you can't afford all the things that we have. And that'll make you a pretty miserable person. The only way to a good life is you become a professional. And when you become a professional, you make enough money to, to have things, to be happy, to have, to, have, um, to have cars, to have houses, to have women. And all those sorts of things, and and the more I think of it, it seems more and more ludicrous that idea because they weren't really happy people themselves. But it, it definitely was sold sold to me hook, line, and sinker that um that the way to a happy life was to become rich, and the way to become rich was to study hard, work hard, and um get a good job. That's the way it was sold to me. Right, right, and. I mean, it's it's tough because I've been rich. Well, not rich, but I've been fairly well off, and I've been, you know, complete broke, broke, completely broke. And mm-hmm. certainly having money. I mean, oh, of course, all other things being equal, having money is better. But everything comes with a cost. Everything comes with a price. And I would love for society to ask children what they want to be when they grow up, and for the children to answer two words, virtuous and happy, rather than have a pretty colored visa card and buy sex through excess resources, right? Because that's what they're saying. They say, have money so you can have a woman, right? And we all see this advertisement, right, which is the, the rich guy with the hot woman, right? Which is, I have money, so now I can buy myself a tasty little piece of flesh. 
a high-class prostitute who's willing to be with me because I can help her buy things, right? I mean, they're both whores in reality, right? But that is not, of course, the recipe to happiness. You can't escape the unconscious short of decapitation. And if you accumulate resources in order to buy a pretty breeder, then you are, you know, below the apes. At least the apes are honest about it, right? So I guess the question is, if if the good life is acquiring skills and acquiring resources, well, that's a that's a that's an empty animal existence. Now, if they said, well, become a doctor so that you can help people, become a lawyer so that you can do some pro bono work and give to charity, because once you have resources, you can really help people. That's a slight – you understand there's a difference in ends. But mm-hmm. if they say, well, get resources so you can spend stuff on your own pleasure and buy a pretty wife, I mean, that's pretty narcissistic, right? That's not about the good of the world. That's, I mean, I, I know I'm going to get, oh, you shouldn't yeah, you have to live for the good of the world and so on. Well, I don't really agree with that. I think that the world is in a tough enough state that anybody who's not calculating in some manner – what good they can add to the world, that person is problem, is part of the problem, and not even potentially part of the solution. And I'm not saying that people got to quit their <laughs> uh, quit their jobs and go screaming about philosophy to people on the sidewalk. But what I'm saying is that if we all have the capacity to heal the world, we all have the capacity to help the world. And dear God in heaven, the world desperately needs to be helped and healed at the moment. So since we're all doctors and we're all stepping over bodies and people with spikes through their hands and horrible infestations on their skin and and fingers falling off and all that, and we have a bag that can help them of of morphine and of disinfectant and antibiotics and whatever, right? If we are doctors and we step over bodies every day and don't even acknowledge them – I don't think we're really good doctors. In fact, we're pretty bad doctors. And so since we all do have the capacity at some level or another to help what is truly a dying world, and a world that when it dies is going to fall on us and our aspirations and our hopes and our pretty wives and our expensive cars and our big houses and squash them flat as powder, then anybody who is making life calculations with no thought whatsoever to how to save the world, well, I think that person is kind of... Because, I mean, particularly if you're in this kind of movement, right, or if you've even heard anything about philosophy or virtue or whatever. And so, and it doesn't have to be, you know, maybe it can be you find some internet resource like this one or some other one, and, you know, just spend 20 minutes or half an hour a week sending it around to people. That's all I'm really talking about. And so I think that what's missing from what you call work is purpose and virtue. Does that make any sense? Oh, that makes absolute sense. Um, I have one last question for you is that... um. What you have said is all, I completely understand. I think 
that I already realized that to an extent. I just have one last question though, which is um, you know, back in your <laughs> back in your entrepreneurial days, not saying that you're not entrepreneurial now. Back in those days, I heard podcasts of you talking about like, oh, uh, work for the software company, and we'd be working 12 to 14 hours a day to push out the next software and get that um request for proposal and and doing all those sorts of things. And I'm just wondering what what gave you all the energy to do that? What gave you the drive to go out there and become become effective? That's a good question. I was intensely thrilled to have even the opportunity. And I think that's, I mean, I came from such a decrepit, broken up, broken down, not just family, but entire social environment, that for me to have the opportunity to write software, to manage a group, to go and give sales presentations to write RFPs and all of that kind of stuff and to negotiate. And I mean, it was an unbelievable, unexpected delight. I certainly believed that and still believe that the software that I was working on did some good to the world, helped people make the air cleaner and so on, kept the government off their backs. So I think that it was doing good uh, environmentally. I think it was doing good philosophically. And I really wanted to create an environment in the workforce where people could enjoy coming to work, where people could have opportunities, where a boss was a resource, not somebody who was scary. I wanted, because I, I really knew that if people had that, had exposure to that in the world, that would change their lives. It would change their relationship to authority. And it would also change their relationship when they became an authority. Uh, particularly if I was their first boss, that was going to change how they were going to be a boss. It was also going to change how they were going to be a parent. It was going to change what they expected from business or economic environments and so on. So, I, I mean, I knew I was doing some good and I was very happy to be doing that good. I was enormously enthusiastic about having the opportunity, which was quite unexpected, about having the opportunity to do what I was doing. I felt very lucky, very privileged. And... Um, I was also terrified, <laughs> right? Uh, entrepreneur is, is, you know, half love, half fear. Maybe the proportions swing back and forth a little bit, but because I liked it so much, uh, all love comes with fear, right? All love comes with fear because everything that you want, you fear to lose. The more you love your life, the more you're afraid of getting sick. The more you love your wife, the more you're afraid of her, Getting in an accident on the road, the more you love, the more you have to lose and the more scared you are. And I loved the opportunity. I loved the um, – I, I also I, – I loved the way that I was able to handle power. I was very pleased and proud of that. I didn't have any good examples of how to handle power, but I really thought it through. I journaled a lot. I was in therapy, of course, so I really worked on how to not be – a threatening authority figure, but to be a resource. And it's tricky, right? I mean, you, you want to be the employee's resource, but you also need them to get stuff done. So how do you achieve all of that? Well, it's challenging and it's complicated. And I didn't want to be the, you know, Steve Jobs reality distortion field kind of guy um, because that erases other people and that's megalomaniacal and that doesn't build an organization that lasts. And 
the organization that I co-founded and that I was largely responsible for growing has lasted. Yeah, the em employees bought it out and uh, they're all still working there because they love the environment. And so I did create a good nugget of positive economic energy that ha has continued to this day, which I'm enormously thrilled and pleased about. So, um, so I mean, the, those were my motivations. Uh, there was the exercise of unguessed abilities very much to their full potential. And also that I felt, and, and I knew that I was doing uh, economic, political, and social good uh, through, through what I was doing. Um, well, all I have to say is that that is much food for thought. I mean, that, that's quite a beautiful vision, and I hope that I could share that one day. But, um, yeah, if, look, if, yeah. You want to be a, if you want to be a salesman to do good, then you will be motivated. If you want to be an entrepreneur to create a great place where people want to come to work, I mean, we had staggering amounts of fun um, when I was the boss, when I was the chief technical <laughs> officer. I mean, we would, I mean, we would go whitewater rafting. We would took everyone to cottages. We went to Palladium. I, I remember being on a very contentious conference call with a client, and <laughs> somebody shot one of those. Um, little rubber sticky things with the stick on the end, uh, the suction cups. It looked like <laughs> I shot it at my forehead. Now, admittedly, that is not a small target, but um, it uh, was something and funny and actually just the right thing to do because it really broke the tension for me having to continue that call while attempting to pull this suction cup off my head. Uh, so I think um, that kind of stuff is, uh, you know, we would stay and play you know, late night, uh, after we'd finished doing the coding for the day, we'd stay and play uh, late night online uh, games and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we all would go for coffee, go out for dinner. We went to each other's houses. I mean, it was really, it was really a great environment. And so I think that, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very, so, so it was exciting for me to go to work. Uh, it was, and, and I, you know, if, if an employee wanted to do something different, right, there was one guy came on as a coder. He was really interested in doing the, the sales presentations. So I had him, you know, I flew him out and we went to a couple. Then he did one and, you know, he really liked it. So, you know, I was happy to help him expand his skill set. It was great for me and it was certainly great for him. So, uh, you know, another guy had an R&D project that he wanted to do where he wanted to replace our reporting structure with direct coding RTF files to the hard drive. And, I mean, it took him, it took him months, but it was actually a really great idea. And so, you know, the, the code read through our reporting structure and recreated the reports using RTF, which was much more portable. Uh, and so there was lots of really great stuff that people wanted to do and wanted to try. And, you know, because I'm not a central planner, I wanted to create that kind of environment and that kind of possibility. So, so yeah, it was, uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was a huge amount of fun, a great experience, um, and taught me a lot about how the existing financial structure that we have is really threatening to long-term business interests anyway. So, so yeah, find something that you can do that's good for the world. And, you know, as, as Nietzsche says, give a man a why and he can bear almost any how. But if you're just looking at, I want stuff. And so I'm, you, I mean, you can't, because then it just becomes a calculation. So let's say you can get a house that's twice as big if you go to school for 10 years. Well, is that worth it? No. Um, it is worth it if you're totally empty and status driven, 
right? So if you say, well, I get a big house and a fast car and a pretty wife if I go to school for 10 years, and the alternative is that everyone in my social circle thinks that I'm a failure, I will never be respected in my community, everyone's going to be embarrassed for me and look down on me, then it becomes worth it, right? But it's not worth it if you actually have some self-respect and recognize that being judged for the mere gathering of material wealth, being judged for that is shallow, petty, slave-on-slave controlling verbal abuse. I mean, you know who gathered a hell of a lot of money? Hitler. (laughs) <laughs> beyond the so did Stalin and so did Lenin all these guys were incredibly rich Bill Clinton makes a fortune what is he $200,000 a speech it's crazy Barack Obama what did he make millions and millions of dollars last year I mean okay so 72 hours after he wins the re-election he's sending drone strikes into Yemen mm-hmm. look the guys thanks I said, uh, Bear Stearns, so the Lehman Brothers, they make an unbelievable fortune. They do that by pumping dog shit stocks on the financially incompetent, by cold calling people up to some degree and saying, I've got, I used to get these calls all the time when I was in business. Mm-hmm. People cold calling me, sell me some stock that they were promising was going to go to the moon over the next month or two. To which, of course, I replied, Well, why are you telling me? <laughs> Right? I mean, you should just all yourself. I mean, that's crazy. But um, those guys all make a huge amount of money. And there are shallow people, I would argue, with sociopathic tendencies who simply look at the accumulation of economic wealth, regardless of its source, and cry envy and cry power. And of course, commercials. Uh, do all this kind of stuff, right? And commercials are the absence of philosophy and to a large degree in the absence of religion, right? I think it's really important as a society that we really understand this because philosophy used to give us a road to good life uh, called virtue, you know, reason equals virtue equals happiness. And religion used to give us a road to the good life, which was, you know, obey the ease of the church, do good in your community, and you will get to heaven. And we have taken those two structures particularly away from the young. Religiosity has declined by about a third among the young, just in one generation, right? So, I mean, by 2050, we will be a non-religious culture. But the definition of the good life has not magically filled in with reason and virtue, filled in the vacuums left behind by nationalism, by racism. Racism used to give you a route to the good life too, which was racial purity and a rejection of the minority underclass and a ganging together and a banding together and a protection of the women and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, racism, nationalism, uh, even your local sports tribalism, religiosity, philosophy hasn't had that job for a long, long time. But all of these used to define what virtue was, what the good was, what the good life was. And they've largely, not everywhere, but largely fallen by the wayside. And what has taken their place? Well, what always takes the place of any deeper principle, I didn't say better principle, but any deeper principle, everything that takes the place of service to others is serve the self. Where stuff is produced that is way beyond what is necessary for people to go around in. I mean, you need a car travel. What the hell is a Maserati doing in there? 
<laughs> you know, you clothes on your back. What the hell is a $6,000 Hugo Boss suit doing in there? But that's all because people have no capacity to negotiate on rational terms, so they end up negotiating or dominating on status. This is very common, right? Uh, because they don't have the capacity to meet as equals and negotiate and love or respect or even fight each other as equals, they end up having to have this status display. And this is very common in the animal kingdom. Right? Animals don't actually want to injure each other because that's not good for the gene pool, but they need to have ways of showing dominance. And they do that through various displays, right? Chest thumping, uh, the, the, the rams have the horns that they butt each other's heads with. So animals have ways of showing or, or of establishing status non-lethally. And in the absence of philosophy, and even in the absence of religion, we revert to the bestial. We revert to the animal. And if you look at human society in the absence of any deeper values, what you see is a bunch of bald apes all climbing on top of each other, using status, using rhetoric, using power, unable to meet, unable to negotiate, and unable to find anything of any depth or satisfaction in their own lives, driven on by an empty hungriness for power, whatever food they eat makes them hungrier. Whatever drink they drink makes them thirstier. And the only satisfaction they can get or the brief alleviation of the discomfort of emptiness is to climb on the back of one more person to get a slightly higher view, to feel slightly taller. That person then sinks into the general mud of irrational hierarchical dominance to which they need to climb someone else. So it's like climbing a set of stairs that is continually sinking into the mud faster and faster and faster. That is the addictive nature of status, and that's all that we're left with when our values evaporate. Hmm. My sentiments exact stuff. Um, I guess my, my search for a good life continues. I have a good idea of what it is, but it continues on the bus. But um, thanks very much for your words. It's really helpful. And um. Yeah, keep up all the good work. Well, uh, thanks, Biff. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, let me know how it goes if you can. All right. Have a good day. Bye. Thanks. All right. Up next, we have Mike. Hi, Steph. Hello, Mike. Hi. How's it going? Good, good. Um, I wanted to uh, first, uh, this is the first time I've called you. We've had a couple of uh, short email uh, conversations, but... Uh, uh, I wanted to thank you for all you do with FDR. Uh, it's made a huge difference in my life so far. <clears throat> um, well, thank you. We we are certainly our our major mission statement is to reclaim the initials from that rat bag socialist president. So we're <laughs> we're well on our way. We are at least a half of one percent of the way there. So yeah, <laughs> that's a good goal. Um, yeah, in fact, um, I started the conversation with my parents who are in their. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, and the result of that so far has been that they uh, they actually entered psychotherapy. <gasps> How uh, cool is that? Yeah. Wow. I was uh, really surprised and really thrilled. Wow. Uh, also, Just tell me what uh, happened. How cool. Uh, well, uh, basically, uh, it became fairly obvious from conversations that I'd had with them that, uh, that my set of beliefs had, had changed quite a bit. And uh, that resulted in my mom sending me an email with kind of her um, 
you know, her take on things and wanting to wanting obviously a, a response. And I just kind of went, well, if she's asking, <laughs> I'll give her the whole uh, the whole. I will story. take her at face value and assume that she wants an answer, right? Exactly. And uh, she didn't quite know how to respond, but my father kind of stepped in, uh, and uh, that resulted in a, a fairly long back and forth with him. And uh, and there was, I mean, there was some there was some tension. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of tension. Well, uh, if there's no tension, then you're not doing anything real, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And uh, uh, he, you know, kept interpreting what I was saying as being a, a direct attack on him, where essentially I was putting things in terms of my relationship with my son and allowing him to draw the parallels, well, you know, <laughs> between how he related to me. And I, I actually did not have a... Uh, my childhood, if you were to compare it to the, to I guess the norm, uh, was not bad by any stretch of the imagination. But of course, everyone has issues with. Uh, um, well, you mean with relative to your parents, right? Because I mean, I assume you went to public school and all that kind of crap, right? Yes, exactly. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, so your childhood at home with your parents was okay. Good, good. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, you know, but of course, uh, you know, we all have issues, or I certainly had issues with uh, being, uh, uh, you know, marginalized and and not uh, feeling like I was uh, uh, being uh, considered uh, valuable, uh, things like that. Psychological psychological issues. No real. I mean, I suppose the only abuse I ever suffered in terms of physical was I probably was spanked two or three times as a as a young kid. So I mean. Uh, certainly nothing there, but uh, uh, and being having his parental uh, choices questioned uh, came as a big blow to my dad. But uh, he did come around, and uh, I got this surprising uh, email and phone message saying that they had entered psychotherapy, and I was just floored. Wow! Well, that, that's I mean that's fantastic. Do you do you know why? I mean, obviously, you had a lot to do with it, but do you know why they may have taken that rather surprising turn? I mean, I wish everybody would, but um, do you know if they have any? I mean, were they interested in self knowledge or well, psychology? On and off in the past, they have. I mean, uh, when when they were they joined some kind of S thing. I think when I was uh, probably in my uh, pre pre teens and early teens. So I mean, they have. Oh yeah, uh, that was the forerunner of the Landmark Forum, if I remember rightly. Yeah, it was a oh. thing in the 70s, which was pretty confrontational, right. kind of shrieky, like you weren't allowed to go to the washroom, uh, and um, pretty intense, but very confrontational kind of um, a assault on illusions, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly, something like that. Uh, okay. And so they're not okay, complete. Okay, so there's some precedence for, however clumsy and aggressive it may be, but some precedence for an interest in self-knowledge or a lack of uh, in, in mere historical inertia for yes. how they were working with things. Okay. Yes, definitely. Okay. And, uh, I mean, they had had a, a, probably what I would call a little scare a few years back when my older sister actually kind of disconnected herself from the family uh, in a rather kind of uh, angry and confusing okay. way to the rest of us. So I think they had already, they were a little nervous. <laughs> so. Why, do you know why your sister did what she, she reconnected? Do you know why she did what I'm, she did? She has reconnected. Um, I I I don't really know why, and I'm quite sure she doesn't know why. 
Uh, but How do you know? Have you asked her? Um, uh, I have talked to her a little bit, and basically she's she came up with this idea that she she had a friend at work who was uh, <clears throat> who was uh, uh, had Asperger's syndrome, which is a, uh, on, on the autism autism spectrum, and she had some conversations with him, and as a result of that, she ended up taking some kind of online test that um, uh, led her to the conclusion that she might, in fact, be autistic, hmm. which I consider to be personally ridiculous. We have a son who is, uh, has been diagnosed as autistic, and her behaviors are nothing like that in any way, shape, or form. But so she basically used that as an explanation for, oh, this is why I've always had problems with mom and dad with their authority. And boy, it must have been so difficult for them because uh, how could they have known how to deal with a child like me? Hmm. And uh, basically, she just kind of re-entered the family. Uh, so, and uh, I think that... Uh, uh, you know, basically, she's convinced herself that that's the reason, and now she can, she doesn't need to dig any deeper, you know. Oh, so she's, but, I mean, good Lord, does she really think that some online test can do that diagnostic capacity? Um, <laughs> apparently so. <laughs> or that, that coupled with her uh, direct experiences with her friend who is uh, on the autistic spectrum. All right. I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> all kinds of bells are going off in my head about yeah. your family, oh, yeah. but um, uh, but listen, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your son. Uh, how's I, I, you don't have to talk about, it, of course, if you don't want to, but uh, maybe we can talk about it another time. But oh yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's that's, actually, that's a challenge. Yeah, he's actually it is a challenge, but he's actually fine. He's 14 now, and uh, he's really starting to open up and uh, uh, become the person we always thought he could, and he's really. Uh, just uh, growing in all sorts of fantastic ways, and a lot of that uh, is because of this conversation. So I thank you for that. Oh, you mean uh, the philosophy stuff? Yes, yes, definitely. Oh, good. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And listen, I mean, I you know, parent to parent, I can only imagine the kind of resources that that has taken from you and your wife and other family members. So, um, holy crap! I mean, I stand in awe of your dedication because that's a hell of a hell of a thing to work with and takes a huge amount of resources to, to turn it around. So I just wanted to express my uh, exceedingly great admiration for the work that I can just imagine you've had to put in. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, actually, what I, what I called about um, is I have a, I have a question um, regarding the uh, relationship of uh, uh, religion to the family. Uh, and uh, if this is an, 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 an accurate statement of your position, just let me know. But you say that the relationship of a religious believer to the authority of a god is the relationship of a parent or their parents writ large. But you've also said that the concept of God is, is a projection of uh, one's own unconscious mind. And I'm wondering how those two ideas can be reconciled. Sure, sure. Um, well, there. So that there seems to be. I mean, this is fairly well established um, statistically. A correlation between 
uh, high levels of fear and an affinity to that sort of Old Testament vengeful God. Right. You know, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament because some people are physically abused and some people are verbally abused. And the physical abusers are drawn to the the physical abuse victims and abusers are drawn to the Old Testament. And yeah, this is a very broad statement, but the verbal abusers and so on are, are drawn to the New Testament, right? You know, the big punishment in the Old Testament was physical beating, rape, and death, right? So that's all physical abuse. The uh, big punishment in the New Testament is hell, and hell is in the category of verbal abuse, right? It's verbal threats. I guess we can call that a step forward. It's really hard to say, but, uh, you know, at least in the Old Testament when you were dead, you know, God was done with you, but of course in the New Testament, you've only just begun <laughs> when, you, when you go to hell. So, uh, so people who are, uh, have higher levels of, of fight or flight response uh, tend to be drawn towards the Old Testament, and then those who have less of that and problems with verbal abuse, I would argue, tend to be drawn towards the New Testament. So clearly, the authority that you – so God is, a, is, is um, an empty vessel, right? And since there is no God, whatever we think of as God and whatever we emotionally accept as the nature of God, it can't be coming from God, right? Right. Right. You know the whole point behind these Rorschach. Rorschach. I never know how to pronounce that. Rorschach <laughs> tests. You know, these, they give you these um, uh, ambiguous blotches on a piece of paper and then they, what do you see, right? And, and because the blotches aren't anything, whatever you see has to come from you to some degree, right? Right. And so since there is no such thing as a deity, whatever you conceive of as a deity must be something that is coming from within you. And because the deity has very explicit parental overtones or characteristics, right? So the deity was around long before you were around. Well, that's a, that's a parent, right? The deity is responsible for your creation. Well, that's a parent. The deity judges and punishes you. Well, that is a parent. The standard by which the deity judges and punishes you are inexplicable, but the punishment is very harsh. Well, historically, at least, that's the parent. The deity puts forward moral rules that you are punished for disobeying, but that the deity is praised for upholding. Right. So, so the deity says, thou shalt not kill, and you can't kill, but the deity kills all the time. Right? It's a moral hypocrisy. Well, traditionally, that has been parenting. Right? I will hit you to tell you that you can't hit. For you to hit is immoral. For me to hit is moral. Right? So you've got right. all of that. Uh, all of that. I, mean, you, I could go on and on, but you get, you gen, you get the general picture. Because, sure. and, and of course, you know, what do we call God, our Heavenly Father? Like it's not even subtle. What do we call the priest? Father. Right? And so it's not even subtle the degree to which the deity is patriarchal. Right. And so, yeah, so if I, if I show you a blank canvas and you say, I see a picture of an angry father, my first supposition is that you have an angry father in your unconscious that you're projecting onto the blank picture. Where would you get or how would you get an angry father in your unconscious? Well, either it's because it's innate to humanity to have an angry father in unconscious or because you had repeated exposure to an angry father 
And because you couldn't negotiate with or escape the angry father, you internalized him in order to protect yourself. Right? We internalize immoral people around us so that we can anticipate their moves, so that we can predict them. Right? Like, I mean, the, the antelope internalizes the hunting habits of the lion, <laughs> not because he wants to be a lion, but because he wants to not be eaten. And so we really do have to internalize people around us who do us harm as children so that we can navigate and negotiate and attempt as best we can to predict, avoid, and ameliorate the harm that they can do to us. That's just biological drive, right? right. And so we internalize uh, an evildoer or a harm inflictor uh, when we're children. But part of keeping ourselves safe from the person who inflicts harm upon us is to not call that person immoral, right? So if you are uh, if you are beaten by someone, uh, if you're beaten by your dad, then you can't openly call your dad evil, right? Obviously, because he'll just beat you more and and harder, right? So you have to pretend that your father is good and just and fair, at least to his face, uh, at least until you get older and big enough to fight back or whatever. And so the evil can't be directly expressed. So anything which has great impact on us, which cannot be directly expressed, tends to take up residence in the unconscious and okay. seeks to relieve itself by bringing the truth to bear in other ways, right? Which is why whenever you have a heavenly father who is considered to be moral, but consistently violates his own moral premises, is incredibly punitive, vengeful, just, petty, immature. I mean, I read a book some about 10 or 12 years ago. I, can't, I think it was just called God, or maybe it was called Jehovah. Basically, it was a literary analysis of the God of the Old Testament. I mean, the God of the Old Testament is a, is a villain that outstrips any conceivable genocidal murderer throughout okay. any of history. And so, uh, but you can't call an evil God evil, but the evil remains. So you have to create something called Satan, uh, which is, you know, obviously ludicrous when it comes to any of the internal logic of religiosity. Um, how can you an ever-loving God, a perfect God, a heavenly father, produce an ultimately evil offspring. Well, of course, it's all nonsense. And why would God create Lucifer if he knew he was going to go and do evil? And, you know, much why on earth would human beings have to suffer for the evil that Lucifer did and does? I mean, that's like, it's like blaming the Palestinians for what the Germans did in World War II. Oh, wait, that happens too. <laughs> but um, so uh, all of this stuff uh, comes out of uh, experiences of, of authority when you're children. The infinity stuff goes straight back to early childhood. When you are a little child, there's nothing your parents can't do because everything they can do is so far in excess of what you can And there's a mild temptation when you're a parent to bask in the glow of that adoration. But I'm very clear with my daughter. I can't do that. I know that, right? Why is this this way? I don't know, but maybe we, we can look it up together. Or there's things she can do that I can't do. Like she does this amazing spinning sideways, land on her knees, jump when she's dancing. She's like, Daddy, do that. And I, I could do that, but only once. <laughs> and then there'll be sirens, and I would need some new knees. And yours are too small, so let's not do that. So, uh, so I hope that gives you some sense of sort of where I'm coming from, that Something which doesn't exist can only have emotional power if there are projections from the unconscious of right. something that the truth about what uh, what occurred. And the reason it gains such power is because 
what actually occurred cannot be spoken of openly uh, and, and plainly. Wait, whatever you speak of, whatever you can speak of openly and plainly robs the unconscious of its power, right? The unconscious is, at least in my way of thinking, the unconscious is, is a dam, right? I mean, you only get an excess of water building up behind the Hoover Dam because there's a Hoover Dam. Right. And when you can express something plainly and openly, then the unconscious loses its power. And this is why I say to people, go talk to your parents, go talk to your priest, go talk to whoever it was that harmed you as a child and speak plainly to them because that drains the unconscious of its, projection, of its power of projection. Once you drain the unconscious of its power of projection, authority is revealed as assholes, <laughs> right? Not gods, not politicians, not priests, not hallowed teachers sacrificing themselves for the good of the noble and ignorant savage children and so on. So for me, having plain conversations with those in power is an incredibly powerful tool to undermine the magical power and authority and brutality of the state. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, it does actually. I think that uh, I'm going to listen to it again later, but I think that does... uh Listen to it again. If any, any sense of truth, if there's any sense of truth whatsoever, dear God in heaven, do not listen to it. No, I'm just kidding. Please. <laughs> if, if the helium balloon is currently held aloft by my hot air, please do not come back in the room I have left. <laughs> no, I hope, that, I hope that helps. And look, if, if you have any questions, I mean, feel free to call in again if it doesn't make any sense um, when I'm done. But that's certainly been, been my approach. And certainly it's my experience. You talk, speak truth to those in power, then um, they, they do lose that kind of power. Right. Okay, great. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. And thanks for a great call. And uh, congratulations again on the amazing work you've done. And, you know, it probably won't mean, you know, a spit in a windstorm, but I'd like to thank your parents <laughs> for what they're yes. doing. <laughs> I will uh, let them know. <laughs> let them you. know that the podcaster says, yay. I'm sure that will make <laughs> in very fundamental ways. Yeah. Not at all. But, but anyway, appreciate it if you pass it along. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. All right, we have 41 minutes and counting. 41 minutes, two callers. All right. Fight! No. Uh, next up is... Hi, yeah. Jeff. Hi. Um, you can hear me fine? Hello? Hello, go ahead. Uh, Steph, um, I'm terrified. I feel really, really scared of talking to you right now. Take your time. Um, I sent you an email a couple of weeks ago, and um, there was no response. So, um, but you know, you might have been busy. So, um, do you mind if I just read the email? Please go ahead. All right, dear Steph, I feel like I'm ready to write this email after 1,231 podcasts. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have saved my life and the lives of everyone I touch. You mean the world to me, and I can honestly say that I love you. I hope to one day be the kind of husband and father that you are. There is so much to say, but I will limit my words, hoping that we will engage in more conversations in the future. I've given up on all abusive relationships. I've taken responsibility for some horrible abuse 
that I inflicted on my siblings. I have started to trust my feelings. I've attained a happy, honest, fulfilling, and loving relationship. All of these things and more could not have been achieved if I had never seen that innocuous yet fateful debate between you and Jan Helfeld. So thank you, Steph. I still have a long way to go, though. I want to be more involved in the FDR community. I want to build a huge business based on philosophy and rationality, not for any ego reasons anymore, but to make philosophy accessible to those in financially difficult situations and also to pay restitution for my considerable wrongs. I want to build orphanages, schools, charities, universities. That is some of the good stuff, Steph. You should know, however, that I was a horrible human being. I used to torture my little brothers and sister. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Yes, go ahead. More than six years younger than me. I would beat them with cricket bats, coat hangers, you name it. I inflicted ten times more pain on them than anybody ever inflicted on me. And I did from the age of seven to the age of 19. I feel so guilt, so much guilt, regret, and sadness every time I think of them. I was an abuser. I was a monster. I stopped around the age of 19, a few months into your podcasts. I'm 22 now. And a few months back when I was about to defoo, I sat all of them down and just broke down and cried, apologizing. Okay. Tears are welling up in tears are welling up in my eyes as I write. <laughs> they said they forgive me, but I know that that amount of abuse can cannot be forgiven, and no amount of restitution <laughs> will make it better. <laughs> I know that I'm different from most of your listeners in that almost all of them were abused and not also abusers. I remember a recent, recent listener conversation about siblings where everyone was feeling guilty about things like name-calling in a sibling relationship. Times like these, I start thinking, if that makes them bad, then how much worse am I? Mm. How can I ever be accepted into this community? <laughs> I am and always will be very sorry for what I did knowing full well that I cannot give my brothers or my sister their childhoods back. You have said many times that there is no coming back after you have abused a child. You have said that even children have moral responsibilities. I don't feel ready for a Skype convo for many reasons, one of which is that I'm already dealing with these issues in therapy. I do, however, want your opinion of me, or at least this email. That's it, stuff. And did you want to talk some more? Would you like to hear some thoughts? Yeah, I would like to hear your thoughts, Steph. Well, first of all, I mean, what you just did was incredibly courageous. <laughs> incredibly courageous. And, and the process that you're doing of examining your history and the, I mean, baseball bats, that's pretty horrendous, of course. I don't need to tell you that. But the courage to face the devils inside you is considerable. 
It's it's huge. So I first want to just just point that out that this this is almost the very definition of courage, which is to do something you know is right when you know ahead of time that there will be horrendous negative consequences, right? I mean, you could have just continued with abuse. You could have found people to abuse as an adult. You could have achieved positions of power as an adult. You could have found weak people to dominate and bully as an adult. But you didn't, right? Yeah. You haven't. Yeah. So by not continuing the abuse, you have now exposed yourself to guilt, right? I mean, people continue the abuse to normalize it so that they don't have to face what you're facing now, right? Yeah. And you knew this ahead of time, right? I did. I did. I mean, I've, I've talked about it from the very beginning, so I certainly, if you weren't warned, you weren't listening, right? So you did. Yeah. And so to open your heart to the wrongs that you've done is, is it, is it worse than you thought it was going to be? Is it about the same or is it not as bad? <laughs> It was horrible for the first first few months and for the first year, but you know, I I had to listen. I had to I had to know more. I yeah. started with the with the political stuff and the economic stuff, and yeah. there were hints. There were only hints over there, but I got it. You know, yeah. I, I had to go on, and when I did, it was. Terrifying of what right. I did. Right. And another reason why people keep abusing is to keep the images of the prior abuse at bay. Because my guess is that you remember most of it now, right? The yeah. looks of the eyes of your siblings, the feels of the bat, the feels of the bat on the skin, the impact yeah. up your arms. You feel it all, right? Yeah. I mean, there's... Uh, abuse is the avoidance of necessary empathy. Continued abuse is the avoidance of necessary empathy. So you remember it all, and you probably remember it even more than your siblings, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, why did you do it, do you think? <sighs> what was necessary? Why was it necessary? Because, and I've been working on it for a very long time now, so I know Good. I didn't want to face the reality of my situation. And I wanted to, I wanted, I didn't look at them as human beings. Well, because no, 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 that, that has to come after the trauma, right? I mean, to dehumanize is not. Well, I'm going to dehumanize people so I can attack them, right? There has to be a dehumanization that has occurred beforehand, and it has to have occurred to you. So what was the situation that you were talking about that you wanted to avoid by assaulting others? That if I was wrong, then, then my parents were wrong. That my culture was no, wrong. No, that's very abstract. What specifically was occurring to you as a child that was so unbearable? Control, beatings. Abuse. Okay, so let's talk about the specifics. What was occurring? Beatings with what implements? Beatings with hands? Beatings with sticks? Rips, everything. But it wasn't. It wasn't arbitrary the way it was with me. As in, I would, I would hit my brothers on a whim, and my parents, my grandparents. 
would hit me when I wouldn't do good in school, do well in school, or if I break some rules, you know. Yeah. Okay, your argument is that your uh, abuse was arbitrary, but your parents and grandparents, and you said earlier, your cultures, your culturally sanctioned abuse was not arbitrary? Not the physical abuse, no. Phys physical abuse. I remember, oh, I, I used to steal when I was 12, 13 years old, and there was one hey, time me when I... Too. We should have started a gang. <laughs> At one point, I stole a considerable amount of, of money from my mo mother's purse, and it was discovered. And that was the first time that my father whipped me with a belt. Mm. <laughs> and I was <laughs> terrified lying on the bathroom floor, and he's still whipping me. That's, I'm giving you that as, as an example of me breaking a rule and then getting abused compared to with my brothers if if they wouldn't if they would make a mistake playing ball or playing cricket well look sorry first of all let me let me explain to you and I'm sure you know this but I'm going to just tell you anyway yeah. there is no justification whatsoever for hitting a child yeah Right. Yeah, I mean, you understand that. The yeah, reason, I, I mean, I, I stole money from my mother's purse, too, when I was young. Um, I mean, she never had any money, but I would take a quarter and I would go to the mall and I would play a video game with that quarter. And the reason that I would do that was because I needed something in my day that I could look forward to. I needed some damn thing in my day that was going to be like a star in the night sky. In the endless yeah. blackness and dismal decrepitude of my environment, I needed something to look forward to. And yeah. it had nothing to do with... Uh, because you understand that for your father to whip you with a belt because you stole is to say that property rights and self-ownership are very important. And so I'm going to destroy and attack your body in order to uphold the principle of self-ownership. That is unbelievably contradictory. I mean, just philosophically, you get that, right? I do, Steph. Okay. okay. I when was did afraid. the start? As early, I mean, even before I can, I had my first memories, I'm sure. Because it was I, I, my earliest memories of being whipped around by my grandmother when I was four years old. Right. Yeah, I mean, and people, I mean, it's, it's impossible to understand the world without understanding the propaganda of public schools, without understanding to which babies are hit. Uh, I think it's 40% of English mothers admitted to hitting their children before they were, before the children were even 12 months old, when they were infants. Which only goes to show you that hitting children has fuck all to do with discipline. Right, because you obviously you can't hit a, a baby for the baby's failure to do X, Y, or Z, because it's a goddamn baby. So anyone who hits 
a baby or a toddler can never in their wildest fantasies claim that it has anything to do with discipline. Because yeah. you might as well throw a stone at a bird and saying, I'm trying to teach it how to read. I mean, teaching it how to read is just an excuse to throw a stone. So I just really want you to get that, that you weren't hit because you disobeyed the rules. The rules are invented as the verbal abuse component of being hit. In other words, if, you, if the people can get you to believe that you're hit for breaking the rule, then they have layered in verbal abuse to physical abuse. Yeah. The rules are invented so that you can be hit and you will blame yourself. Yeah. So I, I just really wanted to point that out, right? Because you seem to have some distinction. In a weird way, you're saying I'm worse than my parents when I was a child because my parents punished me for disobeying rules, whereas my punishments were arbitrary. And I, first of all, you can never place moral responsibility higher on a child than on a parent. Ever. It, it, they're not even in the same galaxy. <coughs> but right, I did so, it when I was 18, Steph. No, I look, I will, we'll get to that. I'm just talking about your earlier memories, okay? Yeah. So, the other thing, too, of course, is let's say that you were just a bad child. Your parents did nothing wrong, and you were just a bad child. Let's just say that. It's not true, but let's just say it for the moment, right? What would good parents do with a child who was hitting siblings with a, base, with a, a cricket bat? They would protect yeah. Protect the siblings. Protect the siblings, whatever the cost, right? Yeah. And you got away with this for over yeah, a decade. I, yeah. I was telling that to my brothers. I was telling them, what about all the bruises? Of course they knew. Of course they saw. Well, and if they didn't know, then they were negligent in their attentiveness, Right. No, they knew stuff. They talked. Of course they. Of course they. Of course they knew. Of course they knew. They talked about it. They used to call me. My parents used to call me the Hitler of the house or the 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 field marshal, because I would discipline. I would be the one disciplining my siblings. And you know that in most countries the the military takes its orders, right? The military is just obeying orders. Yeah, <coughs> would have been true, of course, of this situation as well. I imagine. I did discuss that in therapy. I was the the substitute abuser. Yeah, you're, you're the enforcer, and of course, if people have become truly sadistic, then they enjoy watching abuse as well, and they also enjoy corrupting the soul of a child to the point where he becomes abusive. Right? They take deep pleasure in that. Yeah. Yeah. They have lured you to the dark side and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And it was not just my parents' stuff. It was my whole society. I mean, this kind of abuse was rampant. I mean, I see it today in public. And like just a couple of weeks ago, I saw, I didn't see, but I, I got a feel, I got a sense that a parent was hitting his child and I wanted to intervene and I was going towards the, the policeman to call him because there's a policeman right in front and he didn't do anything. Right. And 
I live in the in the UAE, uh, and my girlfriend pulled me back. You know, she was afraid because we're living together, and we're not allowed to uh, since we're unmarried, and that's what she was concerned about. And I felt horrible for days, thinking about that incident that you mentioned when you intervened with a parent was screaming at a child in front of a fair. Mm-hmm. And look, there have been times when I haven't. There have been times when I haven't intervened. I won't sort of get into the reasons now, but I really want to, I really want to point out that this is not, this doesn't make you another bad person. I just want to point that out, right? Oh, yeah, I mean, so in the culture, that you're talking about, child abuse is, is rampant. And, and you can't understand the religiosity or the hierarchy of the state in, in these cultures without understanding that it's all founded upon child abuse. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, um, Lloyd DeMoss has written articles on Palestinian suicide bombers, their relationship with their parents. I mean, I'm not putting everyone in the culture, of course, into that category, but you know, the religiosity and the, the statism and the hysteria and the violence. I mean, it's all. The, the conformity, the, the, I mean, it's all just fight-or-flight mechanisms developed through extreme child abuse. I mean, what you went through was extreme child abuse. And the first thing to understand, I mean, for me, at least, right? And I truly sympathize with what you went through as a child. I mean, when you were telling that story, I could almost feel the bathroom tiles on my cheek. <laughs> Thank you, that, Steph. Unbelievable, terrifying, because you don't know when it's going to end. You don't know if your parent has lost control. You don't know if flying belt buckle is going to take out an eye. You don't know if you're going to try and run and bang your head on the porcelain of the toilet and end up with encephalitis and brain dead? <laughs> you don't know. After the fact, you know that you're going to die. But in the moment, it is life and death. You do not know if you're going to live or if you're going to die. Thank you, Steph. I mean, that's the first thing that I really want to, uh, I really want to empathize with. And, of course, this went on for a long time. And, you know, I'm certainly no expert on how all of this stuff works its way through the psyche, but my guess would be that when you were a boy and you were being beaten, when... Well, certainly the message that you would get is if you're bigger and stronger, you make up rules that children are bound to violate, and then you unleash all of your shame and your rage on them. And because you're powerless in the face of your parents, and powerlessness is the most unbearable state for any living organism, <laughs> that you then attempt to achieve any kind of power over others to stave away the feelings of helplessness, right? Yeah. I mean, the predominant feelings of my whole childhood was were anger and confusion. I would probably argue fear as well. Yeah. And the confusion is just a defense mechanism. I mean, children know why they're being abused. I mean, they probably have to tell themselves all this nonsense about rules and stuff just because it's too unbearable otherwise. 
But children know why they're being abused. And they know that they're being abused because their parents are brutalized infants in big, giant, flesh robot bodies with the weapons of size and economic and legal strength behind them, venting all of their own childhood rages and fears and frustrations. In a culture in general, this is not just true of where you're from, but all over the world, in a culture which will do nothing to stop them. The confidence of abusers is truly astounding. I mean, they know, without a doubt, it seems, and almost always true, they know that they will suffer no negative repercussions, that nobody will shun them, that nobody will interfere, that nobody will call any authorities, that nobody will stand up for the children. They know this. Yeah. I've talked to many, many abuse victims who were abused in apartment buildings with paper-thin walls, who were abused in front of family members, who were abused in public, who were abused in a community, who were abused at church in full view of the priests in the congregation. And it's amazing. It's like having a license to steal and then wondering why nobody actually bothers to get a job. Parents have a perpetual get-out-of-jail-free card, as to priests, as to teachers, a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card where they have no negative repercussions. And I'm not even talking legal repercussions, but no social, no social repercussions. I mean, your culture will come down hard on you because you're living with a woman, entirely voluntarily, entirely adult, non-coercive, non-brutal, voluntary. Your society will come down like a ton of bricks on you for that simple act of living with a woman that you love and who loves you. On the other hand, if parents beating their children with a baseball bat, everybody's perfectly fine with that, right? In fact, anybody who intervenes is going to get shit on socially, right? Yeah. But that's how insane it sure is. Anyway, enough of my my speechifying. I mean, I certainly have more thoughts, but I mean, I want to make sure that that I hear what you're saying or what your experiences of the conversation. It was, it was exactly what I expected, but uh, you know how you say that when you feel fear, when you're terrified, it means that you want something even more. Mm. You want it even more. I feel like that, that was the feeling that I was going through before getting on this call. I really wanted you to know I wanted this whole community to know. And I'm I'm so thankful to you, Steph. I would not have what I have today without without what you put out every day almost. Well I appreciate that, way, but yeah, go ahead. I just yesterday I, I saw the video or a, a video that you put out on uh, how to deal with toddler tantrums, philosophical parenting. Yeah. I felt so good. I felt so good. And I'm going to share that with everyone, every parent at work. I'm going to make them watch it. It's really important. Thank you so much, right. Steph. Oh, listen, look, I, I appreciate that. And I'm not going to try and shrug off the compliment. I know that what I do is essential and rare. So I really appreciate that. But all I did was open a gym. You're the one who shows up at 5.30 in the morning with a hangover and works out, right? I've just got the gym, 
So you're doing the work. I really want to appreciate what you're saying, and I, I don't want to deflect it, but it's important to remember that you're the guy who's actually lifting the weights and uh, some seriously aerobics. Sorry, that metaphor didn't work very well, but I think you understand. <laughs> yeah, now, very much. <laughs> there's Sorry. one other thing that I'd like to, uh, to, to mention, um, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. Okay, so children do have moral responsibility, but it is vastly outshadowed by the moral responsibility that the parents have. Really, uh, First of all, I want to point that out, because the moral responsibility of childhood abusers is complex. Now, did you have any evidence or any external disapproval of your actions when you were a child? Yeah, I would get beat. Like uh, no, what my sister. Is, um, oh, you're, uh, when, so if you were uh, when you were abusive towards others, did you ever have anyone who who told you that it was wrong to do what you were doing? and attempt to discover why you were doing it and teach you other ways of dealing with your feelings? No. No, you were the first ones. Right, so if beating was the cause, then beating is not the cure, obviously, right? That's like upping your sugar dosage because you've got diabetes, right? Yeah. So, and then of course your parents would joke about it. Oh, he's the little Hitler. Oh, he's the little field marshal or whatever, right? Yeah. So, did you even in the media, did you read anything? Did you ever see anything which talked about the root causes of childhood violence and alternatives to abuse? I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. You would remember remember because it was such an important topic for you right i'm sure there are times where you said to yourself i'm not doing I, that again I, I only remember when you i only remember your podcast being the first one i don't and when did you start listening to those a couple of years ago yeah when i was 19 right so and that's when you stopped right yeah well good uh good 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 i mean congratulations but moral responsibility occurs when you have either knowledge of an option or an easy capacity to get that knowledge. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I mean, the metaphor is an old one, but it's a good one, right? You've heard it before, right? A doctor in the 17th century could not prescribe antibiotics for an infection, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't bad. He didn't know about it. It wasn't, didn't exist. It wasn't there. It wasn't in his vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, if I, uh, if I go back in time to Xerox in 1950 and say, well, what you need to do is you need to get a LAN and then you need to set up a whole bunch of wireless printers and you all need to email each other. It's going to make you way more efficient, right? They'd be like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about, robot boy? I don't, it makes no sense, right? Science fiction is not an option in the business plan. Just 
just to interrupt Steph, I feel like I feel like I was being dishonest because I did read books like I read The God Delusion when I was 15 by Richard Dawkins and I think it had something about child abuse too. And so I feel like I did have Oh no, knowledge. no. Yes, I mean, I think he's got a, a, a chapter on religion as, as child abuse, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think the same thing is uh, God is not great by the late and somewhat lamented uh, Hitchens. But, um, but that didn't tell you anything about the source of your capacity for abuse, and neither did it provide you any alternatives to what you were doing, right? No, no, that's true. So it didn't give you any knowledge that would actually help you to stop in the way that this show did, right? Yeah, I mean, when I started, I couldn't stop. <laughs> right, and and the other thing too is that you say, when I have to continually fight your assumption of moral responsibility in the excess. You say, when I started, look... You didn't just wake up one morning in a wonderful, peaceful, loving, happy household and say, I think I'm just going to go take a bat to another child. Right? You were provoked. No, I'm sorry. I was talking about the podcast, Steph, when I started sorry. the podcast. Oh, and you're fully morally responsible for that. My apologies. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. You misunderstood. Okay. And so, yeah, okay. So there's, you know, a, a rope comes slithering down the well and you climb till your arms burst, right? So, yeah. so I, I really want to point out that in the absence of alternatives, it's really hard to assign full moral responsibility to someone. Yeah, you were like, the first alternative. In the Castaway movie from about a decade ago, whenever the hell it was, Tom Hanks, when he was stuck on that desert island eating coconuts, fingernails, and fish or whatever the hell he ate, he lost a lot of weight, but Nobody comes back and says, hey, Tom, you had really great willpower to avoid the Big Macs and Twinkies. Because had no yeah. choice. Just ate what he could. And he didn't have any choice. It wasn't a willpower diet situation. I mean, you have to have some exposure <laughs> to something to have some willpower, to gain some responsibility about it. Which is why, you know, the, we, we used to, in the primitive days, we would... Blame homosexuals for being homosexual. A, as if there's something wrong, and B, as if they chose it. It's like blaming a woman for being a woman. Well, not exactly a choice. It's just something that happens in the womb, right? Yeah. So, in your culture, in your religion, in your family, in your extended family, nobody had any problems with what was happening. And... Nobody opposed what was happening. Nobody stood up against what was happening. And I guarantee you that you knew as a child that if anyone had done that, the truest and most vicious forms of social retaliation would have been reserved for the person standing up for the children, right? Yeah, I mean, they would have to face their own abuse too if they... If they if they say what I was doing was wrong. Yeah, and they would have to face the fact that they were surrounded by abusers. And 
even if the lion doesn't want to eat you in particular, if you stand between the lion and his meal, he's going to maul the shit out of you, right? And so if you intervene between the abuser and his or her victims, the abuser turns on you with far greater vehemence than he would have turned on the victim, right? Because you stand to stop the abuse, right? Which is a yeah. permanent end satisfaction. Like if you take away one meal of mine, I'll be kind of pissed off. But if you threaten to take away all my future meals, I'm going to fight to the death, right? Because – I'm going to die if I, I don't win, right? So whoever stands up for the victim of, of perpetual abuse gets the abuser's ire far in excess to the abuse that's being perpetrated in the moment because it represents a change for all time in the future. And either then they continue the abuse, which means they're probably going to end the relationship, or they stop the abuse, which means that they have to deal with their own shit and they have to, have to start standing up and go against their own culture, their own history, their own community, deal with their own parents and all that kind of stuff, right? So once you've been a parental abuser for a long time, you're really in a corner if somebody stands up for the kids, right? And you tend to unload with both barrels and reload as quickly as possible, right? So this is the alternative that was not present in your environment for reasons that in terms of short-term emotional calculation, makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. I will also give you one possible alternative that just occurred to me. Do you think that any of your abuse towards your siblings precluded, avoided, prevented, or minimized any potential parental abuse towards them? No. Wait, wait, let me correct myself. I thought I, I misunderstood your question. I thought you meant towards me. And then hit. I. Uh, towards if you them. Hit, would your parents have hit them less, more, or about the same? I would say much, much less. In the sense that they would not hit them at all. Because they're already bruised, right? Yeah. My, was it my siblings were never abused. My sib even when I de food, they they were very um, protective or defensive right. of of my parents. And that's when I gave them that example of how come they never noticed the bruises. Was it safer for your siblings to be hit by you or to be hit by your parents? Once that's hard because if I was 18, no, 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 talking about because you, you had done it for a long time by then, right? Now, then it became a habit or whatever, but I'm just talking about at the beginning, yeah. So, when oh, you yeah, were, it was, it, was it safer for your siblings to be hit by you or to be hit by your parents? Oh, by me, of course, yeah, right. You have obviously retained a significant capacity for empathy, do you think that it's remotely possible that it was a protective gesture at some level? Hit your siblings less hard than your parents would have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's a shitty choice to have to make in any world, in any planet, in any life. But is there some possibility, because I'm trying to figure out how you retained 
your sense of empathy and self-empathy. Because I feel like I'm speaking to uh, a bald eagle in the Mojave Desert, <laughs> not the most common denizen, somebody who's done this, but retained a capacity for empathy. So that's why I'm exploring this as a possibility, that you were saving them from a worse fate. I'll only pull out your finger. Yeah, you know, parents won't pull off your whole finger. You know, my father has never hit my brothers. My my mother too, I think, has never never hit my brothers. She's hit my sister, I think, once or twice. But really, the my brothers and my sister they hug and kiss my mom and dad, and I never do that. I mean, they're comfortable enough to do that with my parents, and they never do that. I never do that with my parents. I've never done that. I've never. My father's never hugged me as a child. He, the first time he hugged me was when I was 20 years old, and I felt dirty. Right. So it's possible that this was an act of desperate protection. Yeah. Let me give you another possibility that may give you some possible respect for what you did when you were younger, which is, I said earlier, that courage is doing something even when you know there's going to be negative consequences. Now, oftentimes, of course, when you would hit your sibling, you knew that if you were caught, you would be beaten further by your parents, right? Yeah. Or if they went or whatever, right? Or even if they just saw the bruises, it might have happened, right? Yeah, so I, I would, I, I instilled, I instilled a kind of fear in them that if they if they complain, it'll become worse. I mean, you talked about that, right? Like if, oh yeah, what's the point of what's the point I'm of complaining? Yeah. If we reframe what you did as a desperate protective measure, then you did it even knowing that if caught, you would be beaten. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my brother's... Sorry? Sorry, it's better for me to hit you than mom or dad, and I'm going to hit you even though I know I will be beaten by the same person I'm protecting you from if I'm found out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why my brothers were never beaten for getting bad marks that I was. Isn't it strange? And what a terrible, terrible situation to have been in, my friend. But isn't it strange to imagine that what you did may have been... I didn't hear the last part, Steph. Isn't it a strange situation and a terrible environment? But isn't it a strange situation to imagine that what you did may have been... Heroic. I've never thought of it. It's very strange for me. It's the first time I'm hearing it. Even in therapy, it never came up this way. If you wanted to see your siblings hurt, like if you were genuinely sadistic, and if you really wanted to see siblings hurt, you knew exactly how to get them really hurt at no risk to yourself, which would be to set them up to 
parental rule and then reveal it. Or to steal something from your parents and put it in your sibling, right? Oh my God. Then yeah. would have been face down in the bathroom with your goddamn father whipping them with a the belt, right? So if you were genuinely <laughs> Of course, harm to at no risk to yourself and harm than you could have achieved yourself, right? Yeah, but you never did, did you? Yeah, you never did because they got through without being beaten. You might as well have nailed yourself up on a cross, right? <laughs> what do you think? I feel like you're right, Steph. I feel like you're right. <laughs> and when I left, I I wish. I hoped that they could see my parents for who they really were. And I think, I mean, uh, I feel that this is uh, probably quite an accurate view of the situation. Obviously, you need to explore this with your therapist. This is a possibility, but... In trying to explain your capacity for self-empathy and empathy towards others, I think it's the evidence that I'm... You cut off there, Steph. Hello? Yeah, sorry. It's just that you did retain a capacity for empathy and self-empathy. You retained a moral sense. And when you came across resources, i.e. this show that gave you some nourishment, you leapt at it as if that's what you'd been waiting for your whole life, right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Thank you for feeding me, Steph. <laughs> and I'm very sorry to have not responded to your email. Uh, I, I do apologize. No. That's okay. I, I know you were I, well, it's you going through a lot of the time. Maybe I felt it was probably better as a call, but I should have. I should have at least said that. So, what? What? I mean, what do you think? Uh, how do How do you feel at the moment? I feel. Uh, I feel like it was a long time coming. You know, it's three years now since I first found you, and I feel really good. I feel like. I can I can join the community now. I feel like I can contribute more. I feel I feel like I want to send this to my brothers. I feel I feel sadness thinking about what you said. 
feel like you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> well, I hope so. It's, I hope that it's. I mean, I, I hope that it's helpful, and I think it's, it's. I mean, the difference is that children are already in a situation of violence if there's violence in the household, but parents initiate that. Now, of course, parents have their own histories and this and that and the other, but nonetheless, parents have a choice that children don't. And so it's, ch children do have moral responsibility, but moral responsibility is lessened through exposure to violence as a child, when you're a child, of course, right? And it is also, it's lowered by a lack of access to alternatives. Yeah. And it's also lessened by the effects of what happens. So if the effects of you hitting your siblings was that they never got beaten in the way that you did, then clearly, if you were a sadist, you sucked at it. <laughs> Bad sadist. Not good, cruel guy. Right? That's not very good cruelty. If they got off scot-free, relative, right? I mean, obviously, they were still in that environment and they were getting hit by you. But if... If they got off not being hit by your parents, then the argument that you were simply initiating cruelty for cruelty's sake doesn't really hold water. As I said, you know, there's many, many better ways to get your siblings in trouble if you want to see them hurt or humiliated or beaten or something like that, especially if you have such willing abusers on the part of your parents. So that's sort of the information that I was trying to, to work through as we were talking, just so you sort of get a sense of how I got to that conclusion, right? Thank you, Steph. Oh, man, you're welcome. You're welcome. And I hope that, uh, I mean, obviously a therapist can help you work with this, and I hope that your, your siblings will be able to hear this. I, again, it's a completely weird thing to hear from a sibling standpoint, too. You know, I hit you to avoid worse, even knowing that I would get hit for hitting you, which was the worst thing being hit by my parents. So this is the, I mean, it's this weird semi-concentration camp bit, you know, well, I will volunteer to hit the prisoners because I'll hit them less hard than the Nazis will. And the prisoners all hate you and you hate yourself, but if you haven't, because as an adult, you may make that conscious decision, right? But it's this weird concentration camp ethics where that which would be unthinkable in a state of freedom and peace becomes something that's as virtuous as it can be in a situation of brutality and sadism. So, look, I, I mean, I really appreciate the call and I, I certainly appreciate the courage of that it takes to talk about this stuff and the courage that it takes to confront this stuff. I'm, of course, hugely glad that, that you're in therapy, that of course would be something I would strongly suggest to anybody dealing with these kinds of issues. And um, I think that's all I have to say at the moment. I think that's a big enough you know, ball of light to toss into your lap uh, for the moment. But is there anything else that you wanted to add to this? No, that's it, Steph. I have a lot more Sunday call insurance to call to now. I'll be there regularly, I think. Thank you so much. And uh, look, I really appreciate. And you know, I, I hope that you know people who are listening to this do get a sense of you know what we're all trying to do in this conversation, and you know how important this 
this conversation is. Um, this is not like any other show. It isn't even a show. I mean, <laughs> you know, I would have been the same category as whatever, right? But um, I hope that, that people get that. And th thank you so much for your time and patience. And thank you so much for the patience of caller. I know we're going over, but um, uh, we do have another caller who wanted to come in. And, and um, thanks again. We'll move on to the next caller. Yes, absolutely. Uh, next up, we have Hagen. Hello, yes, sir. Welcome. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, good. Uh, I actually had quite a few questions, but my memory is bad, and uh, I forgot them. So I wanted to add something about work, and uh, like what uh, what priorities do people make? Like, remember you had this conversation from a caller in the beginning of the show, yeah? Yeah. And. Uh, so the thing is that like many people have this in them they have the gut feeling which would say like stay home you know and maybe with your kids or stop for a moment think you know which would uh, drag them to this direction of like self-improvement or some or rest or whatever but uh, the, they also have this uh, like a, a setting that will take like that will tell them like you need to do it or oh, i need to do it because i need to feed children or whatever reason you know because i need to do it because you need to go and not stop and everything and i would just think i just want, would like to say that, that uh, i think it's very important as i grew up i understood that i need i, I needed to you know money for for entertainment for alcohol i was smoking and drinking alcohol or whatever computer games that I needed everything uh, only because my parents choose the priorities. They like they took away their attention from me. They took away their experience. They took away, you know, what I really needed was not money, but like their attention and their experience, you know, and their care and love. They took all that away, and because of, because they, they they were busy with work, you know, and then they were tired, and then you know, like how it happens most often with people. And um, because of that, they left me with alcohol, cigarettes, and computer games, and all that, you know, crap that basically is surrogate that will make you even weaker, you know, stupider, and decrease your capacities. Well, I surely did decrease my capacities. And I think it's very important to to really hear, you, listen to your gut, you know, instead of this setting. That if you have like a choice between gut and setting, should better go with gut, especially when uh, it's, it concerns your children. Yeah, I mean, most people don't have any principles with which to make any major decisions, and so and and that's very convenient, right? For for everyone around them, it's convenient for culture, it's convenient for religion, it's convenient for the state, for people to not have any principles because. <laughs> You know, if you don't have any principles that you're going to stand up for, you know, a man who won't stand for anything will fall for anything. And if you don't have any principles, then the bullies gain power, right? Because if mm -hmm. you don't have any principles, then you're going to make your decisions based upon the expediency of the moment, which means that people who lure you with status, right, the shallow quasi-capitalist materialists, they will gain power and the people who bully you will gain power because 
taking on bullies in the absence of principles is an irrational action. Why? It's like putting your head in a lion's mouth (laughs) for fun is an irrational thing. And so you don't see a lot of people just walking around killing their backs by lifting, trying to lift cars. But if someone they love is trapped underneath, they'll damn well try. So if you have a purpose, then doing something that is difficult or painful makes sense. But the hedonism that arises in a society without principles, I don't, and even without false principles, right? I mean, (laughs) ask someone, they say go vote, right? Go voting, vote to do your civic duty and so on, go vote. Um, I mean, how about be knowledgeable, (laughs) right? I mean, go vote. It's like saying to someone on the street, this guy's having a heart attack. Here's a knife, go operate. It's like, well, how about gaining some knowledge first? But of course, the gaining of knowledge is not what people want in power, right? So philosophy is the opposite of bullying. It's the opposite of materialism. And it certainly is the opposite of hierarchies. All of those require that people make their decisions based upon an absence or lack of principles. In other words, they end up making their decisions about what is convenient for them socially, what is going to get them least attacked, what is going to get them most praised. And that only reinforces the slowly closing Death Star junk room called culture and uh, slave-on-slave aggression. So I hope that helps. Yeah, and it really pains me to see, like, for example, a mother, you know, with two daughters, and she is considerably young, and she has the potential, you know, to be a like, really great mother and have a beautiful life. But because of this setting that I need to do it, I need to do it. She basically like, a, you know, uh, like a work course that is about to die soon with a phone, you know, coming from her mouth or with work and everything. And her children don't appreciate. She has only, you know, she they, because like there are many of, uh, you know, such examples in life. At least I, I witnessed many of them. And they don't, the children can't appreciate, appreciate that because they need money on alcohol, you know, and all this stuff, and she's like working for children, but in the end, she she gives them phones, alcohol, you know, some drunk sex in the club or whatever, and this is kind of, they don't don't want, they can't see, they can't realize that actually it would be better to be maybe with less resources, but giving your actual, to children, you know, what they need, what they actually need. And, yes. Uh, well, I don't know if you if you if you want to to add anything to this. I have a little. A, a well, I just you know, want to point out that mostly what people proclaim as a virtue is the opposite of the truth, and so you know you will always hear, you know, Barack Obama and whoever on the campaign trail saying, "We're just going to ask the rich to give a little more." Well, there's nothing wrong with that, because that's a voluntary request. The truth is, we are going to shoot the rich who won't give us their money. You can't say that, because that's the truth, right? And so it's the exact opposite, right, of what is actually happening. What, what is proclaimed is the exact opposite of what is actually happening, And this is the kind of weird thing, you know, I imagine that a photographer 
in the old days. I guess some people still do this. But a photographer who's used to working with negatives, you know, when they're developing the film, you get this negative, you turn it into a positive. The photographer who's used to working with negatives can probably tell after he's worked with it for with them for a while, can probably tell quite a lot about a picture just by looking at the negative. Yeah. And the same is this is how we have to be as philosophers, as thinkers, is that we look at society and it looks kind of weird because it's actually a positive that's being developed into a negative. And so we have we look at the negative, it's the opposite, it's the reversal of, of what the actual picture is. And in a similar way, if you listen to society, society will tell you, everybody will tell you, that uh, children are the most valuable resource, that children are the future, children are the best, we love our children, everything's about the children, I'd do anything for my kids, blah, 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 blah. And if you just listen to those words, then society is incomprehensible. (laughs) Because everywhere you see in society, nobody asks the kids what the kids want. Nobody asks the children what the children want. The teachers don't ask it. The parents don't ask it. The priests don't answer it. The politicians don't ask it. Hey, Sonny, would you like to be in debt for half a million dollars before you're even born? Yes? Well, we've got a solution for you. It's called the national debt. Woohoo! Hey, Sonny, how would you like to be locked up? in a house built by the same people who build prisons for 12 years straight and be taught stuff that we think is important and everything out of science and math and geography is pretty much false. How does that sound to you? Oh, and you won't be able to do much playing, you won't be able to be hands-on, and you won't be able to explore things yourself even though there's all this wonderful technology to do so and there'll be no point to anything that you're learning and all it will do is bore you, frustrate you, And, oh, hey, we've got another plan for you, kids. You know how you've got this bond where you really want to be with your parents? We've got a better idea. We're going to send your parents back to work to buy you shit that doesn't fill up your heart. And then we're going to send you off to low-rent, underpaid, minimum-wage strangers to be raised in a true Lord of the Flies, squalling, (laughs) biting, scratching mess of your peers. How does that sound, little child? Does that sound like a good thing for you? Oh, by the way, sorry about the end of your penis, but we really needed to cut it off because some ghost 5,000 years ago said it was important. And you can go on and on. Yeah, you can go on and on. But but this is is how we deal with children. We say that we're all about the kids and kids are so important, but we never actually ask them. Hey, kids, do you want to go to church and be told how you're born evil and are going to burn in hell if you even think about sex? How's that for you? Does that sound like a great way? No, no, no. Put down the kite. Put down the chemistry set. We're going to be taught how you're evil. (laughs) And even the songs aren't going to be that good if you ain't into baptism. (laughs) Does that sound great? Going to put you in really uncomfortable clothes and have you sit still and be droned at for about two hours about how bad you are. Does that sound like a plan? Does that sound like something you can get behind? Come in from outdoors, stop chasing butterflies. Time to go lock ourselves in the vault of eternal human damnation. Sound good? Let's go. That's not about the kids. It's about the convenience of culture. It's about the convenience of superstition. It's about the convenience of the parents. And it's about the subjugation of the future. So it's now- also a very disturbed, disturbed view on convenience because it's actually convenience, you know, the opposite way, all the way, like, 
the opposite way. It's not. It's not really a convenience. It's like it, it seems like a convenience because they they have they are used to do it. But it's actually what's so convenient with children hating you and sucking up your money while you're working. You're losing your life, you know, on work, and they're just they don't really need you. They 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 need your money because that's how you you know. So it, it, it's kind of it's not really a convenient, I, right? I don't agree. It's it's with, hugely with very very big stretch. No. It's hugely convenient for adults to not challenge conformity. If all you do is hang around people who are broken and praise people who are broken, you never have to actually notice that you're broken. So this photocopying, I mean, if you want to know what culture is, it's an endless photocopying of a broken bone called the mind being photocopied and photocopied and photocopied. And because they're all photocopied, People don't think that they're broken. They just think that the mind comes with that little diagonal lightning bolt split down the middle and it smokes at the edges and it's covered in worms and infested by maggots. They just think that's what the human brain is. In the same way, I don't feel short because I ain't 30 feet tall. People don't feel broken because they just surround themselves with broken people. And when a non-broken person comes along, holy shit. <laughs> right, nobody feels short till some 30 foot tall guy comes along, probably from China playing basketball, and uh, suddenly they feel short. And so it is incredibly convenient for people to not even remotely think for themselves because then they recognize that they can't think for themselves and then the whole lie becomes revealed. It's very easy to get people out of the matrix. You just have to challenge them with something that they don't have a pet answer to. You just have to challenge them with some basic principles and then immediately they get that they are soulless, principle-less, broken machines designed to feed and serve the powers that be. And that is not something that people want to wake up to. So it's very convenient for parents and other authority figures to continue to photocopy this broken brain and call it the essence, soul, and highest capacity of the species. Yeah, interesting. Well, I can't, can't add anything else to this. <laughs> and, All right. Uh, well, listen, uh, sorry, was there anything else that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I, would, I wanted to ask you if, if you care to elaborate. Like, uh, you said that it was a heroic, uh, about the, you, you said uh, it was a heroic doing uh, for the previous caller, yeah, Anthony, that uh, he visited so, his siblings. Yeah, I had here. this. Yeah, possible way to get it. I had a similar situation. I just don't understand. I mean, he is heroic because he actually, you know, have this uh, willingness to realize it, and he realized it. You know, this is this is already, you know, uh, this is more than than you can want. Would you want, you know, for from a person? But uh, I had similar situation. Situation. I have an um, older brother, and when I was a child, uh, my my fa my father he. Uh, he's probably still is, but um, well, he was very abusive, you know, and uh, he was abusive physically, but even more so, he was abusive. Uh, he he would have a strong personality, you know. He was quite healthy and good with body, but he had very strong personality, and he was very very angry, like, and he would, could uh, suppress you emotionally so hard that, you know. He, he made, you know, both of us terrified uh, and it persisted up to still, like, I was still recently 20, 23, 24 years, I would still have this, uh, you know, like, um, echo from before, like when, when a door w would be shut, 
in my apartment, you know, I, I live separately for a long time. I would have this like shivers on my back because he's coming back, he's coming back, you know, and, and, and I have, I, I like, you know, have this feeling to, to run, you know, or something. Like this is how he was strong and, uh, you know, his psychological pressure and stuff. Uh, yeah, and uh, when I was with, with my brother, my brother used to get beaten worse and uh, he was uh, pressured worse, you know, than me. And I was still, I, I would have beatings and I would have pressure, you know, but kind of it was less. He would get most of it. He was like a scapegoat, you know. And when he left, you know, our house and lived, uh, sep- start, start, started to live uh, separately, I would start getting more. <laughs> so I kind of realized that all he needed and all many people need is just a scapegoat, you know. It, they don't really need to justify it somehow. So while my brother was, you know, he was older, then he was a scapegoat. He would receive more, more beating. But I was like a, a, a bit better son. I would, I would, uh, you know, like get, get some of this affection, you know. So they could have one that they're beat and one that they're like, oh, so good, you know, here's a present and stuff like that. And when the other one left, uh, they, they only, he, he only has, you know, one one child. And he would kind of have to, you know, only have one person. <laughs> and I was kind of scapegoat and uh, and a good boy, you know, good son altogether, but mostly a scapegoat, you know, for, uh, for pressure and stuff like this. So I think it's kind of quite uh, a random thing, you know, like as in... As I, I, I would I would think in his situation, if uh, he would to leave, they would could easily switch to some other sibling. But it is good to have you know one scapegoat because they can you know like relieve their stress or whatever makes them uh, do this on him, and they can have like a happy family with other children. You know, like two for one bargain. Yeah, and it's sorry. It's also if you're abusing yeah, one child but not the others. That also heaps more abuse on the child you're abusing because if you abuse all the kids, the, the one who's being yeah, abused is going to take it personally. Right? Them, yeah, yeah but if it's just one, then you say, well, we don't have to hit kids, but we're just going to hit you. That's, that's yeah, yeah. more cruel, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I, I wanted to obviously offer sympathy for, for what you went through, huge sympathy, but also to point out that I don't think I would use the word strong ever to describe an abuser. You know, there's yeah. a scene in some movie with Chaz Palminteri and Robert De Niro where, you know, Chaz Palminteri is playing a tough guy gangster or whatever and Robert De Niro is a bus driver. And Robert De Niro says, you know, it's not tough to get up at noon and steal from people. You know, it's tough to resist doing evil. It's tough to get up at 6.30 in the morning to go drive a bus all day. It's tough to avoid all the temptations in a bad neighborhood. I'm really badly paraphrasing the speech, but um, it's not strong to hit kids. It's not strong to intimidate children. You know, we don't we don't call a boxer a tough guy because he can beat up a four-year-old girl, right? Uh, we, yeah, we say that if he has a desire to beat up a four-year-old girl, he's about the weakest human being that you can imagine. Yeah, it is true. But uh, yeah, you, you you could say you can hear uh, like a, a slight slight degree of affection because I I actually think that uh, because I have 
a bit of like a, a rigidness or anger, you know, uh, I got this like a character trait from him. It's not very good, but somehow it actually helped me a bit because I didn't have willpower at all. I was sick and weak, you know, and everything. And this kind of rigidness and ruthless, it, it was like a substitute for willpower until I could really get a willpower. Like a Right, right. A Bronx Tale. Yeah, that's the film that I'm referring to. Well, listen, I'm going to um, surrender to my belly, which is hanging like an empty pelican beak. Uh, so I've got to go get some lunch. But um, first of all, I've, as always, really, really want to thank you guys, uh, all of you, for, for listening, for contributing, for participating. Uh, there's a reason why I'm able to go and do these talks and that the talks are very helpful. Uh, very helpful uh, in terms of building up my resume and all that kind of stuff and, and it all just l ratcheting our way up the uh, slow uh, ladder uh, towards greater exposure. And uh, so I really want to thank everyone so much for giving me the trust, the opportunity to make a documentary, to do the videos, to do the interviews, to do the speeches. And I I'm incredibly honored and incredibly, uh, genuinely humbled by everybody's trust. I mean, I know I think I do, you know, what is needed to earn the trust and so on, but I really don't ever take lightly the trust that people place in this conversation and in the contributions that I can make to helping the world become a saner and more rational place. I really, I really take it with great seriousness and appreciate the vulnerability, the openness, and the honesty that people are bringing, and the challenges, which are not easy. The challenges that people bring to this conversation are uh, a very powerful and very um, very instructive and illuminating. Uh, this show is full of <laughs> teaching moments. And for me as well, I learn a lot. Uh, I certainly had never thought of this um, man who had harmed his siblings. I had never thought of it in the way. And just to be clear, it's a possibility that we were talking about, about his heroism. And so thank you. Thank you for your support and your contributions to what it is that we're doing here. Uh, I mean this for everyone. Even if you're just listening, it can't help but change who you are. So thanks and have a great week, everyone. We will talk to you in seven days minus two hours. <laughs>